Something to do while the world falls apart. Churches are funny sometimes that I'm sure dad's or John, Steve's dad understands this as well. You might go to a place and say, how many is on your membership rolls? Well, probably about five or 600. How many did you have last Sunday? 45. It's, 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 it's ever present. Actually, It it happens a lot. It seems. And even here, you know, I, I've been talking about this because I've had a burden for people that I, d- I don't see, and it's hard to keep track of everybody. I don't mean that in a bad way, but it, as many folks as come here, it just is. But, but how much easier it is, is you that come here, when you look around at your table or up in the balcony or whatever, and you see empty seats and people you, you know that used to come that don't know, for you to call them, <laughs> text them, send them an email, whatever, to just let them know that they're missed, I think that's a good idea. A number of years ago, a church wanted to track down the congregation's dropouts, so they come up with this membership list and ask people who they missed and whatever and got it together, and they sent them out two by twos to find what was going on with these folks. So they got a lot of different stories, if you will. They found things that people were doing on Sunday morning. One person said, I'd come back to church if it didn't con conflict with my, my golf time. Another said, we came to church when our kids were involved and when they outgrew Sunday school, we stopped going. Another said, I enjoy church on the really big days like Christmas and Easter and 4th of July, but compared to those other days, the other services seem a bit dull. And another said, my grandkids are involved in sports on Sundays and I need to go to their games. And they have all these stories, but Jack and Esther was the couple that went out and they went to this one house and they got a, a little different response. They couldn't hardly find the place because it was so overgrown. Had big pine trees in front that hid the house. And they went up and it didn't look like anybody lived there. And they banged on the door. And after a while, the door flew open. And an old man with a shock of white hair said, my name's Tonauer. What do you want? They said, well, we're from the church. We, we stopped by to see you. He invited him in and they explained why they were there, that they hate, that he was on the roll and they'd missed him. They wanted to know what was going on in his life. And He said this, I'll tell you why I don't go to church anymore. It's because I got in the habit of reading the Sunday Times before I went to worship service. So Esther leaned over in a warm way and said, well, Mr. Tarnero, what's that? Do you you get caught up in the sports or the classifieds or what? And he said, no. He said, I read the news. It's an awful world out there. There are a lot of diseases I don't understand. Wars break out. Families fall apart. Children run through the streets with handguns. People die prematurely. Listen, the world is falling apart and the church can't do a thing about it. That was his perception. Well, Jack said, you ought to come back. We got a pretty good preacher and a fairly good choir and the Bible studies on Wednesday nights and we have some groups. You might enjoy the programs. And Mr. Tarnauer said, I don't think so. I go out for groceries and that's all. I went to church for a while, but the world got worse. When my wife died, I decided to sit here and watch everything fall apart and wait for my turn. I don't go to church anymore. The church has nothing to say. He has a point for the fact that we live in a rough and painful world that seems to grow worse each day. Walter Brueggemann writes, and I quote, for all our intellectual sophistication, seemingly assured affluence and confidence in our technology, a deep unsettled feeling that things are indeed falling apart cuts across the spectrum. Our best institutions seem oddly dysfunctional. 
Churches worry about survival. Courts only sometimes yield justice. Medical institutions provide sporadic access and care. Schools only occasionally educate, and all our institutions seem in a deep crisis of purpose, as well as finances. And the presence and the threat of violence is everywhere. End of quote. Excuse me. You agree with that? Do you agree what kind of shape our world is? Yeah. Was he right about what he stated, that the church has nothing to say? Or do we just let it go and be silent? To those in this world who have been frightened by the media, who seem to be purveyors of anxiety that create paranoia in way too many fine folks till doubt settles in, and some of these reports, I do believe, are filled with misinformation and half-truths. The facts themselves are unnerving enough when one reads the reports, such as this one from the United Nation. This is the top 10 levels of threats to humanity as a whole. Poverty, infectious disease, environmental degradation, interstate conflict, civil war, genocide, other atrocities, proliferation, terrorism, transnational crime. Poverty is pandemic. Five billion people live in poverty globally. That's hard, five million, that's hard to, one billion are in extreme poverty, the swelled bellies and on and on, and you know that. It's easy for us to ignore that. I know that. I'm one of them. I'm one of you. None of us probably go to bed too hungry unless we want to, if we're on a fast or trying to lose some weight. To, to let this sink in again, all of us love our kids and our grandkids. Can you imagine watching one of them starve to death? It's beyond, we, we don't have a clue. Second threats, infectious diseases, smallpox, typhoid fever, influenza, cholera, anthrax, malaria, SARS, Ebola, AIDS, they're in our world. Whooping cough's coming back in certain parts. Environmental degradation, pollution, poisoning of the air, the water, and the land, interstate conflict and civil war, Middle East and Africa and Southeast Asia, genocide, killing done amidst a lifetime of shared hatred, other atrocities, including child and adult slavery and prostitution, human trafficking. Human trafficking is bigger in the world than it was in the 1880s in America. That, that's the chart. If you see the green is tier one, yellow is tier two, three is red, and ten is watch lift. So you see where this is going on in the world. I get some flyers on that. It's, it's, it's beyond anything that we can imagine. And here in this great country that we love and we call the great USA, there are many people that are holding captive slaves that they use for all different kinds of purposes, and you won't ever see it or really hear about it unless they get caught. If you got enough money, you can buy children. Let's, let's just say that. People go to Haiti all the time and buy children. They go to Thailand. They go to these other third world countries. And for X amount of dollars, you can buy these children and do whatever you want. That, it's just almost more than the human mind can stand. But that's, that's what's going on in our world. Proliferation, nuclear, radiological, biological weapons, landmines, cluster bombs, etc., etc., and so forth that are still planted in a lot of places where there'd been war and when there is, where there is war going on. 
Terrorism, that needs no explaining, does it? Not in the last few years, what we've experienced and seen and what you hear on the news. It, about every day, you read about a terrorist report somewhere. Translational crime, organized crime, it's a worldwide big business estimated at least $2 trillion a year. Does the church have anything to say about these threats? That's the question that we're asking this morning. We, we are safe, so to speak, here. We are guarded. We are comfortable. Do we have anything to say other than, you know, it's a bad deal? And I'm sure glad I don't live there. It's hard, hard sometimes to, for us to feel anything unless it comes to our house. I remember as a kid, early 60s, I was 10 years old in 1960. So as the Vietnam War, I don't call it a conflict, I call it a war, you can call it what you want. But as that progressed, nightly news, Walter Cronkite would be on there. So many casuals today in Southeast Asia. It kind of bothered you at first, but you know what? It's like Afghanistan and Iraq. We don't think much about it when we hear that a helicopter crash and killed 20 Marines. It happens every day. It becomes part of our life. But it doesn't make it any, any better. But I remember Walter Cronkite every night doing that, and my dad would, would say something. But you know what? As time went on, he didn't, he didn't say so much because we got used to it. It's the same way for a lot of us till it comes to our house. And then when Diane Frank's brother got killed in Vietnam, that brought a whole other perspective to our small community, especially to Casey, Illinois, because they'd lost one of their own. And you have lost people here in Sullivan as well. It makes a difference then. It takes on a whole different perspective. But what's really important this morning is your perspective. What's your perspective of the world? What do we do as this world falls apart around us? Let's face it, it's... I'm not a pessimist. I, I see myself more optimistic. But according to this, it might not get any better outside. It can get better inside our lives as the Holy Spirit fills us with hope, <laughs> gives us direction. But I'm talking about on the outside in this world. One day, four of the disciples heard Jesus speak about the world coming unglued. And he told them, among other, thing, other things, that the Jerusalem temple would be destroyed. Can you imagine how hard that was for them to believe? The temple was the central institution of Israel, the primary religious shrine, the center of commerce and banking, the heart of history and tradition. Yet Jesus said, the temple shall fall to the ground stone by stone by stone. And after he said those words in a few years in 70 AD, Titus and the Roman legions marched in and leveled Jerusalem to the ground. There was not one stone on top of another, but they left the western wall of Herod's temple, the second temple that Herod built. They left that western wall, and that's what they call the Wailing Wall. They didn't leave it for the Jews. They left it for, look at the size of those blocks. And when you go up and stand beside them, they're, they're pretty good-sized blocks. And crammed in all those cracks are prayers of these Jews wanting their temple back. But the Romans didn't leave it for religious purposes. The Romans left it to show the rest of the world that they could destroy a city with blocks that big. They also left the Tower of Antonius to house Roman troops, but the rest of the city was leveled. So this is hard for these guys to grasp that. 
It maybe would be hard for us if somebody told us that this week somebody was going to wipe the United States Capitol off the face of the earth. Now, we know that could be done pretty easy, really, don't we? But it still would still be hard for us to grasp. The four disciples were understandably shaken as Jesus went on to say this. I like encouragement. Don't, don't you like a pep talk, whether you're, you're, you're in a classroom and a professor or teacher's trying to give you some encouragement, or if you're in a, in a ball game and you're a player, and right before you go out on the floor, the coach, he's trying to motivate you a little bit. Listen to what Jesus told the disciples that they would be subject to. Every kind of pain and abuse, wars, famines, earthquakes, persecutions, beatings, betrayals, and death. In such a world, what can anybody do? Jesus gives his disciples something to do. And here he gives them a commandment, an imperative, in the midst of all of his passage language. When the world comes apart, what should every disciple, every follower of Christ do? First and foremost, Jesus says, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Don't get an army. Don't take up arms. Don't form a huge protest. Don't run away and hide your head in the sand, but preach the good news. That is what he demands of us. The good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. What are you curious thing to say? When the world's falling apart, shall we stand up and deliver a sermon? Or imagine this. There's been movies made about this. A huge asteroid is detected in space. One that is large enough to destroy every living thing on planet Earth. And it's, it, we're in course for it. Now let's say it's just, maybe it's just a few hours away. Destruction is imminent. Civilization, civilization all life is going to end completely. Meanwhile, some preacher stands up in a black Geneva gown who says, let me give you three points and a poem. That's a silly picture, isn't it? What does Jesus mean when he says, when the world is falling apart, preach the gospel? Historically speaking, people in the church have taken that to mean get as many people as the church as you can. We talk about getting in the boat, getting as many people in the ark of safety. Scare them if you can to get them in there. And every few years, since I became a believer in the 70s, every few years uh, somebody will, will have a new prophecy and they'll come up with a new book and they can timeline when the end of the world is coming, when the second coming is coming. And they, they, they publish that and people read it and they're all hyped up and then that date comes and Jesus didn't come back. And in some of these books, they name who they think are Antichrist, who the Antichrist will be. Hitler was mentioned and there's been, there's been quite a few actually. With me, it was Henry Kissinger. A lot of the folks that, that I had heard preach and talk about say, that Henry Kissinger, he's the Antichrist. And this is crazy. Even our current president, I've heard people say that about him. Here's what Jesus says. He warns against people like this in Mark 13, 5. Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you. And then verses 7 and 8. And wars will break out near and far, but don't panic. Yes, these things must come, but the end won't follow immediately. Nations and kingdoms will proclaim war against each other, and there will be earthquakes in many parts of the world and famines. But all this will only be the beginning of the horrors to come. Oh, Mr. Tarnow was right. We live in a world where things fall apart. 
And the writer of Mark's gospel knows that, perhaps maybe even any more than the other writers in the New Testament. Let's face it. This is a world disease of headaches, heartaches. It's a world that reminds us of our human weakness. And when tragedy and calamity comes to our house, we are powerless to do anything about it. Whether it's, it's what happened to our nephew or uh, to Jeff Figg, and I can start naming names of people that terrible things have happened to them, or some people that have Alzheimer's or cancer. It, it comes on us. What can we do? Boy, a lot of times you want to shake your fist at God, and maybe, maybe that's okay to get it out of your system and, and tell him what you think because he's our best friend. But man, you can't stay mad. I know people stayed mad. That's not a good gig. But nonetheless, what? it's a world of, with deafness, blindness, paralysis, cancer, Alzheimer's, and death. It's a world of deception and meanness where people put spins on the truth and do what they can to put themselves in power over others. I, I hear this all the time about, and maybe it's all of our fault. There's no loyalty so much in, in the workplace as it used to be. Employer, employee, they look out for each other. They take care of each other. That, to, to me, I, I hear that all the time, that that's all changing. And maybe, maybe it's not, but it's, it's what I hear. This is a world of chaos and cruelty where the innocent suffers and lives are put at risk. Mark knows this, but Mark knows now something else in the world of a favorite hymn from a favorite hymn of the church, an old hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. And the words say this, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, and that word is Jesus Christ. That's what will bring Satan to his demise. He is stronger than all that can hurt or destroy us. That is the word we have to proclaim, the word that you and I have to speak at all costs. The world may be haunted by evil, but it belongs to God. And we may be in love with our own destruction, but we have been claimed by the strong son of God. Even where evil and unbelief swelled up to kill him, God raised up Jesus to keep confronting his enemies as till one day he will trample them under his feet. Yes, this is a world where things fall apart, but God is stronger. God is in charge, and regardless of what happens to us, we can never let this slip from our mind and our hearts that God will always be on the throne. He will never be anywhere else, regardless of, of what he brings into our lives and when. And this is the hard part. When we are in the throes of anger or grief or sadness, Christ is right there holding our hands. The Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts and we sense his presence. He's, you're not alone. You're never going to be alone, regardless of what happens to you. And then the body <laughs> gathers around us, hopefully. It's going to be all right. You're not alone. We're here with you. We're in this thing called life together. And that's the way that it's supposed to work. We should, none of us never feel alone, but I know we do sometimes, but we shouldn't. Jesus with the four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, as they walked with him, he said, 
The time is fulfilled. God's kingdom is at hand. Turn and believe the good news, Mark 1.15. And they saw the kingdom advance one step at a time. I believe in prayer. <laughs> Sometimes I question a little. Don't we all? You know, I was telling you, I maybe already said this already, but we was praying, praying for Marvin, our nephew, and uh, they told us last week they're going to cut his arm off. Well, you know what? Some miracle happened and blood started flowing in that arm. And now he's got another surgery tomorrow. So that's a, that's a God thing. So he and his wife wanted me to tell you, thank you for praying. You know, we can't explain what it was like to be with Jesus. What his disciples actually saw. There are some of you here, I'm sure, that have, have, have seen actual fe- healings. I saw some in Russia, but I've never seen anybody with leprosy, with skin rots off, and they have no pain, and they get fingers cut off and whatever because they have no feeling in it. But can you imagine seeing somebody in that condition with the skin rotten off their face? Jesus going over to him and speaking a few words and maybe putting his hand on them and boom, they got skin like a baby's butt. <laughs> Fresh, new, alive. That was the power of Jesus. The tormented person found peace. The eyes of the blind were opened. The ears of the deaf were unstopped. The lame person jumped like a deer. The tongues of the speechless sang with joy. In other words, preaching the kingdom is always more than speaking a word. It is, in the Greek, a charisma, it's a proclamation, a word proclaimed in speech and action, in doing mission. And I have said this, as I get older, I repeat myself even more and more. But I have said this, and you've heard me say it. The world's tired of hearing about Jesus. They want to see him in action. Hey, hey, where is this Jesus? Why doesn't he help me in this situation? Why doesn't he come and visit me? When I'm in jail, why doesn't he reach out and touch me? Why don't I ever feel his hugs? Why don't I ever hear hear words of compassion from him and warmth? This is what we're supposed to be doing, you see. And and I understand that. I was a like I said, I always tell people I was raised a heathen, but I I didn't want anything to do with God, but I really didn't want to see Jesus, (laughs) to be honest with you. I wanted to do what Eddie wanted when Eddie wanted to have fun when I wanted, to drink as much beer as I wanted, to drive my car 100 miles an hour through a downtown of this little, and nobody bothered me. This is what I wanted to do. This was my life. And nobody was going to tell me what to do. Well, we know how all that plays out. Law enforcement's not keen on 100 miles an hour in town. You know what I'm saying? I imagine the chief deputy would let me do it here in Sullivan, but I I don't know. I'm not going to test him. But that's, that, that, uh, that's the way it is, that it, it, God comes into our lives and he changes us. And then in doing these crazy things that I just mentioned, we, we live it out. People, Jesus wants, people want to see you. They want to see Christ in your life. They want to see why you're different than the rest of the world. And that's why we're here. That's, that's our function As one scholar notes, this preaching is more than the poetic eloquence of gifted public speech. This preaching was the eschatological realization, the make a median, that the kingdom of God, the church is in action, it's in motion, that it's moving. 
Jesus Christ, God's, in Christ, God's reign has broken into this world. And the disciples wanted to know, when will the kingdom come? They didn't realize that the kingdom was in their midst. It's not a distant glory of age. It's around us. But the church cannot ponder the arrival of the coming age as if it was a bus running late. It's the same way with the second coming. Really? Between me and you, the second coming of Christ is none of our business. We, we're still about the Father's business from his first coming. When he told us to what? Go make disciples. Baptize all people. That, that, that's what we're supposed to be about. This other is, is like icing on the cake in a sense when he finally comes. But we're not to know that. And that's what we do. We, we go into people's lives and as changed people so they can see that in us. And sometimes our change is a, a long way coming. We get up and we fall down. We get up and we fall down. I tell stories on myself because they're my life. You make a stand for Christ. You're out on the workplace. You're away from home. The guys go drink beer every night. And you know that's not the greatest atmosphere probably to hang out in, especially if you're a new follower of Christ. Oh, we're just going to have one. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> just stop by one cold one. And then now how, who in here has ever done that? Man, I never have. Well, God bless you, Mel. God bless you. Good for you. I, I've never, I never was able to do that. But anyhow, you know what I'm saying? You, you get my drift. If you can't control it, stay away from it. You know, so you, and I remember on numerous occasions, Evan, I was thinking about you, same, I, uh, I would be strong and then I'd fall. And then, man, man, that is like heaping coals on you. Say, man, some Christian you are. But it was, it was finally a point in my life that, that I cowboyed up, if you will, and I got to the point where I, I could move beyond it. That I got stronger, and then they finally, they finally left me alone, actually. But then in their lives, when calamity came, who'd they come to? <laughs> they wanted me to pray for them or pray for their family, and otherwise they, didn't, they just wanted to make fun of me. Frederick Buchner is a Christian author, wrote some, some great stuff, some emotional writings, usually in deep, in a sense. But he ends a book with a funeral. And in what happens in this book, there's a lot of tragedy. Theodore Nicolette, a, a, a Protestant pastor, loses his wife in a car accident, and he's, he, he's left to raise these two little girls. And one day he goes to track down a wayward member who had left her husband, and his housekeeper was an elderly lady. Her name was uh, Irma uh, Ryan, let's see where, Ryan Wasser. She was a Holocaust survivor. So she stayed home with the girls, and he went to find this woman and brought her home. Well, hi, while he was away, we know in, in, in life that if Satan can give the church, uh, people in leadership, in the hierarchy of the church, whatever, if he can give you a black eye, he's, he's going to do it. So this newspaper editor thought it'd be a good idea while this pastor was away to circulate some rumors and print them in his paper that this pastor was, was, wasn't on the level. With, and he, he, he was a little shady when it came to dealing with women, actually, was the point. And so while he was away, this, this guy put this in the paper. The pastor comes home and um, tries to downplay the rumors, which to no avail. And isn't that true about, it's true about gossip with us? If we can find something that that we think is juicy, that will really spread out there, 
We like to spread that out, whether it's true or not sometimes. I, I, don't, I don't think we can understand the, how much damage that that can do. And in this case, and especially if it's, it's, it's about the church, if there's something about the church and they can get that out there in the media, people like to pick up on that because they're guilty and they're, they know they need to be with God, but they don't want to go that way, so they'd rather black his eye. But nonetheless, that's what happened. So he comes home and Irma, the housekeeper, goes out in the community and said, he's a good man, leave him alone. But the sadness continues in this book because Irma dies shortly. A few teenagers are caught up in the public spectacle and decide to pull a prank on her. And in that prank, her house catched fire and she dies in that fire. So the end of the book comes to a close and the whole town's gathered around the grave of Irma Reinwasser. Nicolette reads the words from the book of Revelation 21.4. And God shall wipe away all tears and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. So he spoke a few minutes, then concluded with words of a committal and a benediction, and people begin to drift away in the rain. One turned back. It was Will Poteet, the sleazy newspaper editor who caused the, the, the turmoil while Nicolette was out of town. Good show, he said to the preacher. Then he pointed to the grave and sneered, This supper of the great God, no more death, no more pain, ask her. Pastor stood silent, his two daughters by his side. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do, and suddenly his daughters did an unexpected thing. They grabbed up some of the flowers they had brought and started pelting poteet with them. Orange hawkweed, daisies, clover. Stooping over like a great pale bear in his beggy seersucker suit, he kept on lunging at them with his finger. Nicolette threw back his head and laughed as poteet went lumbering off with the little girls chasing him, pelting him with flowers. When he got as far as Nicolette's car, he turned around for a moment, and it was only then that they could see that he was more or less laughing himself. What do you do when the world falls apart? Jesus says, preach the kingdom. That's what he tells us all to do. Even if life should turn deadly, proclaim the power of God that is stronger than death, and preach any, and proclaim we shall until the day when there are no more tears, when death has no more power and when grief is swallowed up in laughter. Jesus is our only answer for the world in every situation. He's the only way that you and I can have true peace and joy and purpose in our lives. We need to share it. We need to believe it first and then we need to share it until that glorious day. And until that glorious day in your life, when the hand of God wraps itself around your beating heart and he stops it. And you're not going to be, you're gone. And as we all know, as we talked about, there's only two places, heaven and hell. And we make a reservation here. Once he stops that heart, you're done. You're finished. It's no more. And that's, that's the point. The other option that we have that as we live and breathe on this earth that we'll hear Gabriel blow that horn, that eastern sky will split, and there will be Jesus with his arms open. After God said, turn to the right hand, he said, son, go bring my kids home, and we're out of here. But until that day, till one of the two things happened to us, <laughs> we need to be Jesus. And in life, we, we look for heroes. I don't know if we have so many heroes when we get older, but as a child and a young person, 
We have people we, we look up to. I hope you still do. Hard to find. <laughs> Heroes are hard to find these days. That's why Jesus is mine. But there are others. And we emulate and we follow. We can emulate and follow in the footsteps of this great woman of God who lived, lived at 24-7, who served and blessed and loved others. In this clip, this most humble woman, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, is awarded the Peace Prize. I, I want you to listen to what she says. And though she was not one to accept any awards, she was named recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, a ceremony which she agreed to attend only after being persuaded that it would call attention to the world's poor. I'm very happy to receive this award in the name of the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, and all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for, the throwaway of society. And as we are gathered here together today to thank God for the Nobel Peace Prize, I think it would be beautiful to pray the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, which always surprises me very much. We pray this prayer every day after Holy Communion, as it is very fitting for each one of us. Lord, make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, may I bring love. Where there is wrong, may I bring spirit of forgiveness. Where there is discord, may I bring harmony. Where there is error, may I bring truth. Where there is doubt, may I bring faith. Where there is despair, may I bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. And you know, I, I always wonder if four, five hundred years ago, when St. Francis of Assisi composed this prayer, that they had the same difficulties as we have today, because it is very fitting for us also. Are you preaching the word with your life, with your words, your deeds, and your actions, as Jesus instructed each one of us to do? 
Now I ask you if you're not, why? You need to pray this morning. Pray. You need to pray for salvation. Come to Christ. Come right on up here and we'll show you how. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for direction. The courage to preach the word. Lord, you've given us a clear-cut guide or instruction on how we're to live as your kids. And we're to reflect you. So I pray, God, as you have spoken to each one of our hearts, we might pay heed to that. But whatever we need to do next, that we might do it with joy and gladness because it's from you. Helps to be obedient, Lord. Helps to do the things you've laid on our hearts right now. For we ask in the name of Christ, amen.